You are listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 108. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host and newest contributor to the podcast, Serena Simons, and I'm so excited to be on the show. You will be hearing more stories and interviews from me in the future. But for today's show, I'm joined by Sarah Kazar, an amazing artist out of Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Sarah's work first caught my attention when I was browsing the internet for Christmas gifts, and I stumbled upon a series of recycled notebooks featuring endangered toads. Now, toads being among some of my favorite animals, I had to check out more of her work and was so glad that I did. The series we focus on today is her body of work titled Endangered Species, which features intricate pen and ink portraits of rare and endangered species on the U.S. endangered species list. This series calls into question many ideas of vulnerability, environmental ignorance, and what it means to be human in an ever-changing world. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Um, so why don't you start by introducing yourself a little bit, a little bit of your, your background, where you grew up, and how you became an artist? Um, well, I've been making art since I was a kid, so this is just kind of a long, lifelong thread for me. Um, I'm still living and working in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, right outside Philadelphia, and, uh... Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure how to answer that. <laughs> so Pen- Pennsylvania, what what kind of um, environment did you grow up in? Were you in the city? Were you out in nature? Uh, it's right in the suburbs. So you get a little bit of nature and a little bit of the suburban straw- sprawl going on out here. Awesome. So I guess my next question is, you know, you mentioned you grew up in the suburbs, so you kind of got both sides of the coin there. You got um, a little bit of nature, but you also got um, suburban sprawl, as you called it, and lots of people. So I'm just wondering if there was ever like a an aha moment when you kind of came to realize your fascination and interest in nature Um and subsequent interest in um, endangered species. The work in this series, of course, um, focusing on animals listed on the U.S. endangered species list. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is um, how you bridge the gap between where you grew up and later becoming an environmental artist. Um. Well, just like art, I kind of grew up loving being outdoors. I was just kind of like a nature kid anyway. Um, But I just, it was just one of those things I gravitated toward my whole life. Um, And in, oh, I want to say it was like 2006 or 2007, I did some volunteer work for the Conserve Wildlife Foundation of New Jersey, doing some graphic design and rebranding of their Adaptive Species program, which just focused on species in New Jersey. So um, I was kind of kicking around 
some source material with that and really liking the stuff that I was finding from people submitting work from the field. Um, so I was kind of hanging on to that for a few years. And then um, <clears throat> I was commuting to work uh, by train on SEPTA <laughs> and I was looking for something to pass the time for, you know, like the hour to and from work. Um, so I just decided to just kind of start making my way through the endangered species list. Um, not really intending to start an environmental arch body of work, I guess. I was just really looking for something to pass the time. And um, I was really interested in doing some really technical biological illustration. I really like capturing the real small nuances between all these species. And I liked kind of the part of reaching out to all these biologists, professional and amateur for material from the field and just kind of anecdotally what you pick up from talking to people who are doing something that's totally different than what you're doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I um, just kind of stumbled into it by accident. I, you know, drawing a couple hours a day, every day on the train, it really, it kind of turned into a body of work by accident. And then um, the interest in the subject kind of solidified from there. That's really, that's really powerful. Um, it's just funny how you, I, I think the, the contrast between, you know, taking, taking the train, um, a very modernized, industrial, uh, very human um, mode of transportation, and you are sitting on the train, you know, drawing these beautiful, <laughs> accurate illustrations of creatures that are kind of endangered because of because of humans yeah it was pretty funny and it was kind of nice to you know have conversations with everybody sitting at your elbows like you know what's that and where's that from and <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of cool too <laughs> just connecting with people in, a, in another way I think so with with this series what's your what's your process because I I've really looked at these images and I really encourage all of all of our listeners to uh, go ahead and check out Sarah's work. They are incredibly detailed. How do you, first of all, how do you do that? What do you use? And then secondly, how do you capture such accuracy and detail and texture? Are you looking off of a, a real life image? Are you uh, consulting scientists, biologists? How, how does that work? Normally, I just kind of consult the list and get a feeling for what I'm interested in drawing or, um, I don't know, what I'm in the mood for, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then do a search on Google and Flickr for some source material of the species. Um, and I usually contact the photographer if it's not public source material um, to get permission to use their image and to confirm that it's the species that I think it is because um, I'm interested in making these really accurate. Um, and most of the time, you know, they're really excited about it and they send me some extra images and, um, and so I kind of go from there. And then uh, as far as the actual technical process, they use uh, Faber-Castell pen and ink 
hens and I do hatching and cross hatching to build layers of small marks to get these varieties and textures and, um, you know, that kind of thing to get the personality of the species and, uh, just something interesting to make you kind of slow down and really take in all the different aspects of the portrait I'm making. Yeah. So you talked about, um, capturing all of these details in order to really understand the, you, the, you use the word personality of these animals. So how, how is your work and spending the time to intricately create these illustrations different from the photographs that you are referring to? I mean, how, how do you think someone viewing your work will slow down and really take in that illustration versus the photograph? What does, what does the illustration do that a photograph doesn't? Um, I like to think that I'm adding something different to the conversation. Um, a lot of the photography that I'm using is kind of for catalogs. Like um, I just finished illustrating all of the endangered clams and mussels currently listed. Um, so it's 77 endangered clams and mussels that are, you know, on the edge of extinction. And these are cataloged for universities and they aren't really compelling photographs. <laughs> uh, they all kind of, you know, just look like little lumpy rocks. So <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, take them out of that context and the way I work is so slow and deliberate. I like to think that it, um, a person looking at it who can see all these small marks, it almost slows them down when they're looking at the image also. And so I'm hoping that I'm creating like a little pause in, you know, you get bombarded with so much information that hopefully this is just a little small moment of reflection. Yeah. And how long does it usually take to create any any of these images? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> they take a long time. <laughs> um, yeah, my husband's always like, you just need a Sharpie and just fill in that area. <laughs> uh, like a clam or a muscle, those will take like three or four hours each. Um, but larger drawings, I mean, they're easily 20 to 30 hours a drawing. Um, depending on the size and complexity of the image I'm working with. So then I finish the drawings and I usually send them back to the photographer or after I submit these back to the biologist for review, a lot of times they'll come back to me and be like, you know, you either grabbed the wrong photo, sometimes they need to get reworked or unfortunately in some cases get completely redone because I'm interested in making sure these are correct. So what's going through your head? It takes you, you know, several hours to create these illustrations. And I'm sure lots of things are going through your head, you know. But in, in moments where you are really focusing on the subject, are you connecting with that animal? I mean, I'm thinking about a lot of different things, I guess, um, just from doing... I mean, I'm not coming from this field, so all of this stuff is new to me. So, I mean, I think I'm interested in 
just some like broad stroke questions and trends that I see when I'm making the work, like the list of clams, for example, you know, there's 77 of them that are listed as endangered and not, there's also like the threatened listing, which is less than still serious, but not as serious as endangered. Um, and more than half of those are native to Alabama freshwater rivers. And so it just makes me wonder, you know, like what's going on in Alabama or if there's stuff going on up here that is going south, you know, and just kind of wonder about those things. Um, especially since, you know, it's, they're such hardy little animals. Mm -hmm. If they're dying off, there's something really going on there. Um, and I also, I'm interested in the conversations I'm having with people. I, after I had gotten a chunk of these drawings together, I had my first gallery show at a cooperative gallery in Old City, Philadelphia. And I invited the Nature Conservancy to come to the opening and they were talking with folks about, you know, the stuff that was up on the walls and the work that they're doing. Um, and there were a lot of people there talking about, you know, like I had a mouse drawing up there and there's all these mice and rats listed on this <laughs> endangered species list. And people are like, you know, what the heck? Like mice are listed as endangered. And I'm like, I know I'm surprised too. And it's, it's not about like, to me, it's not like if you're having a connection with the animal, like if mice really aren't doing it for you. I think you should be thinking about like if we're rendering habitats to be inhabitable to a mouse or a rat, then that's like a real problem. That's like a canary in a coal mine situation. Right. So, you know, there's are still things that I think people should think about and it's worth having a conversation anyway. That's absolutely true. And um, I mean, it's it's one thing to have um, an image in front of you of an animal that you connect with, you know, a, a beautiful, majestic elephant or giraffe. You know, these are the kinds of images that we're used to. Um, and definitely the ones that a lot of conservation um, nonprofits and groups are are using to spread the word about these issues, I would say less common they would use, you know, an arroyo toad or um, these clams and endangered rats and mice. But all of these animals are just as vital and important to to think about and talk about. And what you said about you know, if we can't even make an environment habitable for a mouse or a rat, what what does that mean? And 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 what are we doing? And what can we fix? And I, I think that's that's totally powerful. So, what made you choose the specific animals that are in your series? I know we we kind of touched on that a little bit, but of 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 the thousands that are on the endangered species list and the many more that are threatened. Why did you choose the ones that you chose? Well, honestly, I'm interested in doing drawings of everything on the list currently. When I had done some volunteer work for different organizations in this area, 
a lot of the organizations near me at least really do like these smaller like adopt a species program and they feature like 10 animals and I think you kind of lose the scope of the issue that mm-hmm. way um so I'm like when I showed my work in the gallery I had a little over a hundred species on display and I was getting a lot of reaction from folks that are like you know I had no idea there were this many and I'm like you, you have no idea there are so many <laughs> so I you know I don't mean for it to be like a stone cold bummer either but I think it'd be really powerful to see a collection of all of these animals together that are on the edge of disappearing and I think that would be a really um, powerful statement. Um, so following the gallery show and the reaction from people that I had gotten from the show, um, I started up a small company last year selling this work in the form of art prints and stationery. I'm using that as a vehicle to kind of fund this project and, you know, other work that I'm making and yeah, I'm just going to be tackling the list state by state. I am in stores about like 22 different states at this point. Um, and I'm getting some reaction from retailers like, you know, I want to see more in my state and in our area. So right now I'm going to be focusing state by state. Yeah. And I think having your work displayed in that way, you know, taking it to businesses, creating stationery, that is opening up um, an audience that you might not have um, if it was just in a gallery space. You are connecting with people like me all the way in Southern California um, who are seeing your work and, and connecting with these animals. And um, yeah, I think that's that's a really smart way to do it. And hope I'm hoping that more artists, um, especially interested in conservation are able to create dialogues like this with just the the power of our our generation and the internet and you know all the beautiful things that that can create but you yeah, t- you like found me from a store yeah exactly so <laughs> i i actually came upon sarah's work because i was christmas shopping um and i of course you know me who's interested in conservation and I particularly love frogs and toads. Um, I, I found her work online and uh, she had these beautiful um, recycled notebooks with her, her drawings of from the endangered species list on there. And I fell in love. I bought several for friends and, and then I got to, you know, have this amazing conversation with Sarah. So, you know, these, these kinds of interactions can happen this way and I think that's really cool I love it <laughs> yeah um, but you you talked about um, your your goal is to at some point create illustrations of every species on the list is that is that yeah yeah so yes. I kind of set these kind of absurd goals for myself <laughs> sometimes but I'm really determined to do it and I think it's I think it's worth doing so I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah, and that's going to be something that's going to be kind of fluid. That's something that's going to be constantly changing, right? Some some species are going to fall um, out 
fall in and then back again. So how are you going to kind of deal with that? Um, I mean, yeah, that list does seem to be in flux, but I've been watching it for the last few years and there seems to be like a steady group on there. So I think I'm just going to work with what's current and adjust as needed. It's not like, like it's vacillating wildly year to year, like who's in trouble or not. It's, you know, unfortunately, it's kind of steady in that way. I mean, speaking in terms of your work functioning as a catalog and I guess kind of a reinvention of the scientific catalogs that already exist, do you ever feel like your work is something that people might study in the future? That some of these images might be the last kind of impressions or reflections of that particular species while they still exist? Um, I haven't really thought about it in that way. Um, I mean, there's so many people doing this sort of cataloging work and, um, I think I might help in that way, but I mean like the clams and mussels that I just finished up, I'm putting that together in a poster right now, which I mean, honestly, it might be like the most boring poster of all time, but, um, you know. You know, I might serve some form of record keeping, maybe, Um, especially when you look at the list and you read the notes and it's like, you know, we haven't found one of these in so many years and they don't even know if it's still around or not. Like some of these might be extinct already. So I think it's a tall order. So I'm happy I can help a little bit, hopefully. (laughs) Yeah, definitely a tall order. But I think I think it, it. is something that is important and needs to be done. Maybe not even f- just for these, the sake of these animals, but um, for 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 viewers and for um, people that may not be as connected to the natural world. You know, might happen upon one of your illustrations and really, as you said, slow down and take a moment to to really think about not just that species, but what we are doing as humans, to all of these species. So for listeners, regardless of their political affiliation or who they voted for in this last election, if you are concerned and dedicated to the environment, there are a lot of issues with the current administration that are creating conflict um, and in in conjunction with your series, Endangered Species, um, one of those is actually the Endangered Species Act is uh, kind of on the forefront of the Trump administration and their potential um, interest in in either derailing it or defunding it or completely getting rid of it altogether. Um, yeah. So an article that I sent you was a Time magazine article called, quote, Republicans plan to roll back parts of the landmark Endangered Species Act. And so from what I understand about the Endangered Species Act is that it was put into place um, in 1973 and it was kind of a, a way to 
prevent the national symbol, which is the bald eagle, from going extinct. And so that kind of um, went through Congress and it was approved and um, it became a law, a federal protected law, um, where the bald eagle and, and, and then several other species were protected by this act. So, um, Sarah, your thoughts on the, the act itself um, and its potential for it to become manipulated or completely cease to exist? Ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Loaded question, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the article that you sent over, um, when I was going through it, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about it. I have a lot of thoughts about the new administration. Um, I mean, we could talk all day, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I do think that... Um, this fight's been going on for a long time, no matter who is in charge. So in that way, I think a lot of the issues um, are kind of the same. Like what we're fighting for, we're focusing on the hurdles that we're getting in the way. Um, I don't think there's huge, huge change. Um, but obviously I find this news concerning um preserving species and protecting our environment is obviously important but when i think about these issues my attention really goes to the disconnect that i think is kind of at the heart of these issues um i think there's more common ground here than these like all or nothing debates make it sound like <laughs> and seeking out that common ground may be a better place to start these sorts of conversations in the first place. Like the common ground thing though is hard because we're all working with and making decisions with different kinds and levels of information. Um, just as one example, my sister-in-law, she lives out in uh, Bernardston, Massachusetts, which is a small town the population is something like a thousand people, which <laughs> is actually like the size of my high school graduating class. <laughs> but anyway, she has two boys in elementary school. Um, they're about nine and seven. I should know that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we won't tell her. It's okay. <laughs> but they've never had a science class before. And they're not going to have a science class until they get to high school. And in my mind, that's a problem for a lot of reasons. But for one thing, learning about how the world around you works, like how clouds form and why seasons change or how electricity works or what species live around you and what they need to survive, like a whole spectrum of things. I mean, this is good information to grow up with and think about. Um, and I also think waiting until high school to start talking about science sends a message that science is secondary in importance. So to circle this back and put it in context with any contemporary environmental issue, whether it's protecting endangered species or 
addressing climate change or investing in green technology. It's hard to make a case for this stuff when that gap exists. So from where I'm sitting and what I'm trying to do with the body of work I'm making is to help contribute to that education side. And I'll be the first one to tell you that it's like a small, small contribution to the conversation, but it's something. Yeah, absolutely. And there's just so much has has happened since um, Donald Trump became our president. Um, one of the more recent you know, quote unquote, attacks on uh, the environmental movement is the gag order that he put on a lot of the 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 agencies that we we know um, have done a lot of research and have been open proponents, um, you know, saying climate change is is real and this is what's happening and humans are contributing on on X, Y and Z levels. Um, we're essentially raising a generation that doesn't go outside doesn't interact with the natural world and don't take science classes. And not only is that heartbreaking, I, I think it's so destructive. And maybe this is, you know, my own naivety, but, you know, in, in every fiber of my being, my opinion is that if you're a human on this planet, you should care. You should do everything in your power to help, not hinder, and be productive in conserving what we have and protecting all these things that can't protect themselves. And my my biggest issue with this administration is, you know, it's it's business and money and greed over over all of these things, over all of these things that I care about and I know many of our listeners care about is the environment and, and the health of all of these species and, and and the future and having water and, you know, all, all of these things tie into this. I don't know if it comes from, like, a malicious place, though. Like, I think... I mean, if you grow up and you don't have these kinds of conversations and you don't have that baseline education, it's kind of, I mean, you don't know what you don't know. So I think we can all kind of pitch in to like keep the conversation going and help spread some understanding. But um, I think environmental issues are also, they're just so big and so abstract that it's, um, it's hard to address it in a day-to-day way that doesn't come off sounding like you're telling people they're living their life wrong right. <laughs> and people don't want to be judged. And, you know, there's, there are practical day-to-day things that, um, you know, you need to take care of. And, uh, and there's so much that you feel like is out of your control. Mm-hmm. Like a couple of years ago, my husband and I traveled to China and I had heard about the air quality in Beijing, but I had never, I couldn't wrap my head around what that was actually like till we were there and wearing respirator masks all the time and like seeing everybody. I mean, they were so normal that they were accessorized, like the prettiest respirator masks you've ever seen. (laughs) But I mean, and then you go into these towns and it's clear, like they have other issues to think about than even like the air that they're breathing. 
mm. becomes like a secondary issue in their mind. And although we don't have issues as extreme as that, I think, I mean, we are living in an infrastructure and you can do some things, but I almost feel like you have to be in a different sort of position to be like privileged enough to even think about this stuff and have room to take action. I mean, people have some real day-to-day issues that they're trying to fix first before they can think about how to make other lifestyle changes, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, that's really funny that you, uh, went to Beijing. I went to uh, out China, mainland China, in 2009, and I'm sure that the air quality is a lot worse. It was incredible. Oh, oh. even now, yeah. I can see down the street. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and the sunrise looked like sunset. That's one of the most vivid things I remember is coming into the airport, and it was like 7 a.m. and it looked like this. You know, it was about to be nighttime because the the haze and the smog was distorting the light just so that it looked like sunset. Um, but yeah, you bring up, you bring up a really good point. And one of, one of the reasons why I love your series so much is that it's not so in your face. It's not, Hey, the world sucks and humans are bad and there's pollution and animals are dying. And, you know, it's, it's more subtle. I think the kinds of things that you're calling into question in this series are so much more insidious, and I think it gets the job done um, without making people tune out. Well, and all of this stuff is such a bummer, too. Right. (laughs) I want to, like, add the bad feelings. (laughs) Oh, my God. But maybe, you know, I, I think... The reason why your series is so powerful and the way that it's able to connect with so many people on so many different levels is the fact that, you know, when you when you isolate those particular species, something really beautiful happens and it's um, quite magical. You know, and I know a lot of this is open to interpretation. Um, You might just have somebody who sees your work and sees a beautifully detailed drawing of a particular species and and that's kind of the end of of the conversation for them but you might have somebody else who really engages with that and starts asking big questions you know that can open up all kinds of different trains of thought about okay so why is the artist showing me this and what does it mean and why should I care about this species? And what does it mean that this, you know, this image is bringing up ideas of here today, gone tomorrow? Like it, it, the, these species are so ephemeral. What am I doing? What can I contribute? And you, as an artist, you know, y- y- you've said several times in this podcast, you know, you know, I'm only doing this little bit. It's not that much. But I, I really think, you know, if everyone did these these little things that contribute to an, an awareness of the environment, all of those little things are going to create such a big mountain of change. And your series is is one of those one of those things that are opening the conversation, getting people thinking and talking. So um Oh yeah. I mean I definitely have people who are like 
into my stuff because they're like, I like frogs, and that's all they're buying it for. But (laughs) (laughs) I do like that it's getting a little more traction, and I'm getting more specific questions like, you know, stores want to stock species that are specific to their state or their region. Um, And that's really encouraging to me because I feel like the message is actually connecting a little bit more. So do you have any um, showings of this series anytime soon? Uh, Not at the moment. I have shown this work in some galleries um, a couple years ago before um, putting this line together. But uh, maybe when I get a few more species together, yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Just as far as everything that's going on in the news and politics goes. Um, do you, I mean, and, and this is, this has just been an, an overload of. Overload is the right word. Uh, yeah. Just an, an, a complete <laughs> overload of, of topics of discussion, uh, especially as, as, you know, environmental topics go. Um, do you, do you think that your work might reflect some of that um, uncertainty in, in politics and, with regard to the environment in the future, do you feel like this is an inspiring um, thing to happen in terms of your, your work? Um, yeah. I mean, all of the work I make, I'm usually reacting to things around me. Um, and I'm actually starting to make some political work now, which um, honestly I'm nervous to do because uh, I feel like when you make political work, it turns into like, I'm right, you're wrong. <laughs> or it's a lot of the political work I've seen so far just feels like a huge temper tantrum. And I'm trying to figure out a way to make some work that can actually be a conversation and not just spreading around or creating bad feelings. So. Mm-hmm. And it's hard because it's so divisive Mm -hmm. and it really, yeah, it's, it's tricky, but, um, it's hard to not watch all this stuff and react now, but I will say I do like as unhappy as I am with all this stuff that's going on. I do like seeing like this surge in activism. I feel like there's like fresh attention and energy out there right now. And so, I think if it's able to move in a positive direction and not just an angry one, we could actually get some stuff done. So it's, um, it could be a good thing. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And I would argue, Sarah, that your, your artwork, especially the endangered species series is political and that you are being an activist just through that series. Yeah. I never thought about it that way, but, um, Yeah, and especially with the crackdowns that have been happening with the EPA and stuff, I'm like, it feels more political now to me than it ever has, Mm. for sure. So what what would you want your artwork to say to somebody who, I'm just going to say, not necessarily voted for Donald Trump, but (laughs) somebody who has has never had a vested interest in the environment before. What would you say to them um, with regard to your body of work? And as somebody who is 
interested and has a stake in the environment? Well, I guess we all have a stake in the environment, right? So it doesn't really matter who you voted for. And I really, I don't think if you voted for Trump that that means that you hate animals or you don't want to take care of the environment. Um, And I think I talk about my work with everyone the same way. And it's just, this is what I'm doing. And um, I just kind of like to introduce them to the facts. I mean, a lot of these species, people don't realize there were so many endangered species, let alone like what they are and where they're located. And so I think it offers a little something to everybody. Um, And, you know, I don't think it's going to be a game changer. I think a lot of the times like people kind of have their minds made up, but it's just kind of chipping away at a constant conversation. Yeah. (laughs) And, and these are, these are tough questions and tough conversations to have. I think, you know, people like you and I and people that listen to the podcast, we, we don't know what the right answer is, but we, we do know that, you know, protecting the environment is, is an important thing. So, you know, and, and, and it's great to have conversations with, with people like you, um, who are making, making their little spot and, and building on, on this movement that's happening, which, and I, and I really would argue that it does, um, as a, as a political statement. I will say, I just, I feel like, um, I feel like when we talk about issues like these, they just, they sound so big and so abstract that it almost makes people not want to engage with them. Cause I think people need to know how they can be effective or see the effect for it to become like engaging for them, if that makes sense. And I mean, obviously like the biggest changes happen at a policy level, but there's totally room to be effective. I mean, just as a person, um, like just as an aside, my husband and I, we through hiked the Appalachian trail in 2015, which is that big long trail along the East coast of the United States. And that was this intense, immersive experience in nature, hiking and camping for about six months, which I totally recommend doing, by the way. (laughs) But uh, anyway, the trail covers about 2,200 miles following the Appalachian Mountain Range through all these different areas of nature, like national parks, state parks, farms, rural towns, um, like national forests and even like just people's backyards. And among a lot of the takeaways I had from that experience was watching a really noticeable difference in the health of the environment between all of these like areas, I guess. Um, Like we could tell when we were traveling through a protected or preserved area, like we'd be in a state park and leaving and entering. I don't even know what you call it. Just like that natural area surrounding a town, I guess. And you'd immediately run into signs of environmental neglect or advisories not to drink the water from the streams because of pollution issues or 
like sometimes even just a noticeable absence of wildlife. And um, we'd also see the opposite. Like it was noticeable when a town was running like one of those leave no trace programs, which I mean, these things that sound so simple and almost trivial, but it's effective. And we actually saw those differences. So I think like when you get discouraged, it's just good to go outside and do something. Amen. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I I can't recommend that enough because going out and enjoying nature is free. You know, I mean, regardless of anything going on in your life, you know, if you are struggling in, in whatever way that is, enjoying nature is something that we can all do at any time. And to have those spaces where we can go and and really appreciate and, and immerse ourselves are are vital. And I feel like if, if everyone did that more, we'd be in a much better place. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> so um, just to kind of conclude here, do you have a, a website or a place where our listeners can go and find your work? Yes, please. You can find it on my website, Rally Caller. It's R-A-L-L-Y. C-A-L-L-E-R dot com. And uh, I also have my personal website, which is under construction at the moment, but hopefully the new political work's going to live there. And that's at sarahkazar.com. And I'm so excited to see what that work is going to be. And I hope to talk to you about it on a future podcast. Yeah, sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. All right, so that was my conversation with artist Sarah Kazar talking about not only her endangered species series, but really big picture questions about the future of the environment, our interactions with the natural world, and as Sarah says, chipping away at the greater conversation to make environmental dialogue more relatable and meaningful to a broader audience. All of the resources mentioned in this episode can be found on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC108. If you enjoyed this episode of the show, you can subscribe to the EOC podcast on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. Your feedback helps us out a lot, and you can leave an honest rating and review on iTunes for our show. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or click the link on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens, and today's interview was produced and edited by myself, Serena Simons, and co-host Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. The Humidors.